This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, welcome to the future of finance, the Motive Labs podcast where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. I'm James from Motive Partners. Here we are at the end of FinTech Week here in the UK, and I'm joined with Tim Levine from Augmentum FinTech. Tim, how are you? I'm very well. Good to be here. Great, Tim. So you you run a firm called Augmentum FinTech. Can you kick us off by telling us a little bit about the firm and, and, and what you do there? So we are somewhat unique. Yes, we're a FinTech venture capital investor, but we're the only listed FinTech fund here in the UK. Our first iteration was as a more traditional, what's defined as a GPLP fund. And just over 12 months ago, we made the decision to list on the main market of the stock exchange. And now we have 15 portfolio companies currently in our portfolio. And you yourself are, by background, an entrepreneur. Tell us a little bit about how that journey came about. And you started your career early on at I suppose, in a corporate environment, but very quickly moved into an entrepreneurial environment and then moved into what you're doing today. Yeah, interestingly, I feel a little nostalgic because I'm looking out the window and here we are in Canary Wharf. And this was a start of my first entrepreneurial venture right at the bottom of uh, the main tower here in Canary Wharf, almost 20 years to the day. I opened a business that's now called Crush. We were one of the first juice and smoothie bars back in the late 90s. And we were definitely a little bit ahead of our time. That was a phenomenal, phenomenal learning curve for me. Prior to that, I'd spent three years working in consulting, worked for Bain & Company in Moscow, Sydney and London. But I think the entrepreneurial bug hit me early and there was a definite ambition to do something quite different. I think back in the late 90s, telling your parents that you were leaving a very good job to become an entrepreneur was a a byword of saying, I want to take a couple of years off. But I think the reality of running your own business back then was more of a novelty, but extraordinarily hard work and incredible learning curve for me. I think interestingly, as we started that journey, it ran in parallel with the start of what was then called the internet. And we've gone on this extraordinary digital journey over the past 20 years. But it was quite clear to me that it was going to be a once in a lifetime opportunity. And my challenge was, you know, how do I capitalize on that? And that really kind of led me to my next venture, which ultimately became a business called Betfair. Now FTSE 100 business, but back then its first iteration was a business called Flutter.com. It's really a diverse background. I mean, from really being a retailer to then, you know, Betfair. But what really started to attract you back towards, I suppose, financial services or towards financial services? What was it about the industry that drew you to it? Well, I would say that I had no background in retail. I had no background in the betting industry. I think the motivation to, you know, work in the betting industry was back in 99, seeing how archaic it was, seeing the attitude that it expressed towards its customers, we felt there was an extraordinary opportunity to fundamentally disrupt that industry. And we felt that the betting industry would have been one of those that was going to be disrupted first, which clearly played out very effectively. I think roll forward a decade, kind of post-global financial crisis, having spent six years in Asia, actually, I kind of ran Betfair's international business for a period. I moved back to the UK 
And I think one of the first things that struck me was how little the financial services industry had moved when other industries really had truly been digitized. And two, how well placed the UK and London in particular was to capitalize on what I felt was an inevitable disruption. I think the challenge I had was I knew next to nothing about financial services. Not that that had stopped me before. I knew nothing about juice, nor did I know anything about betting other than being a consumer. The reality being, this is a huge, complex industry that does require, in certain areas, deep incumbent knowledge. So the opportunity was clear. I think the real question I had to answer back in 2010 was, how do you start to tackle this enormous opportunity? And that really led me to uh, the uh, development and founding of Augmentum, which was then called Augmentum Capital, back in 2010, backed by RIT Capital Partners, which is Jacob Rothschild's uh, listed fund that he set up in the late 80s. And many would say that you've taken a very unique approach to the way in which you created the fund. I mean, let's put the listing to the side for a moment. This culture of innovation and looking for to really the more disruptive elements of fintech. I mean, there's a lot of fintech that's focused on very much enabling the incumbents. We're seeing increasing pools of capital move into that space. But, you know, you're more focused on the disruptive elements. So thinking about that in terms of the portfolio companies that you look at, but also how you drive that innovative culture internally. How do you really embody that within the firm? I think when I look at the team that we've built, what we are looking for are people that have been both investors, but as importantly, have been either entrepreneurs, founders, or been part of a pretty disruptive entrepreneurial journey themselves. The team is pretty unique in that respect, where I guess the more senior members of the team, we've got about 80 years experience in the UK, digital scene, tech scene, fintech scene. So there's there is a lot of water passed under that bridge. And that just gives us a perspective to be able to really identify those businesses that are doing something truly different not to devalue the huge amount of opportunity that there is in the more structural part of financial services. I think coming back to my point before about having deep incumbent knowledge and expertise, we see a huge amount of opportunities within the capital markets. But ultimately, Mm -hmm. I think you need 20, 30 years of experience to really understand how the plumbing works and where some of those deficiencies are. And perhaps that's not playing to our greater strengths. I think what we've done and you know what we've experienced both as entrepreneurs and as investors is helping build businesses that are transforming the sector that they're operating in. And that comes with some significant challenges along the way. As we all know, it is a, a roller coaster. And I think as, as much as possible, what Venture said they did perhaps 15, 20 years ago, we are more than just money, we're hands-on, we're going to help you. Mm. I think that hands-on help perhaps sometimes wasn't as effective as it might be. I think we're really trying to do what Venture historically has said that they would do, which is just help, add value, address where you think you can uh, bring change. And I think we really recognize where we can bring that value, and we definitely recognize where we don't. We like to kind of uh, step in as and when, but we totally recognize we are, you know, minority investors. Yeah. Uh, we, we do have board seats or observer seats in, in every company that we back, but ultimately we try not to interfere. It's an interesting perspective because I suppose, you know, the sell for investors is always, what do we bring beyond the dollar, right? But, it, you know, I suppose very few people talk about the fact that we know when to step out of the way and let the entrepreneur do his job, which is to run the 
the business and, and have that domain expertise. So it's a nice piece. So moving on from that bit, a little bit more around what drove the decision to list the business? I mean, and how that fundamentally changed the way in which you operate day to day. There must have been some drivers around that. And of course, I imagine it fundamentally changed the way in which your day to day role changes. You've got a set of investors that look very different than they did the day before. I think that's right. I mean, I think when you look at how the venture market has evolved in the UK and Europe over the last 20 years, I think we're starting to see a real change. We like to break the mold. It's, I guess, the entrepreneur in me. When we talked about thinking about listing 18, 24 months ago, I would say the majority view from those who are within the industry said, you've got to be mad. Yeah, why on earth would you want to do that? Why would you expose yourself to that? And it's, you know, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult. Yeah. And most people, to be frank, said, I don't think you're going to get it away, which again, the stubborn nature that I have made me even more resolved to do something different. But I think there were some very compelling reasons. One, we are in a much noisier market, and I think we are looking for differentiation. Yeah. And whereas 10 years ago, perhaps there weren't many entrepreneur turn investors out there, I think we see a lot of very capable funds now that have much more entrepreneurial DNA. There is a lack of a specialism in the market. I think if you are going to specialize our view, financial services was the place to do it and really develop out your fintech credentials. And to say that you are the only listed fintech venture fund in the UK really does stand you out for the crowd. But more so than just differentiation, you know, we are talking about some structural advantages in our view, where if you have permanent capital, if you have patient capital, that can be a real incentive for entrepreneurs out there that believe it might take that little bit longer and don't necessarily want to be governed in terms of exit by the type of fund that has backed them yeah. in that regard. If you have a fund that traditionally would have a 10-year lifespan and their investment period usually is around three to four years, if you're towards the end of that fund cycle, their exit horizon might be quite different mm. from the entrepreneurs that are building out that business. And for us, what we don't want to be is governed by a specific time horizon. It doesn't mean that we want to hold on to our assets for 20, 30 years. But if we have a high-performing asset that's continuing to grow and scale, we are under no obligation to look to sell that asset. And so I think that really provides some flexibility. We want to be absolutely motivated by the opportunity rather than be governed by a specific time horizon that uh, that our fund creates for us. You think it gives you better alignment with the entrepreneur? I think it can. Not to say that the GPLP structure that you see more often than not doesn't have advantages as well. But as I said, I think there are, you know, shifts in the market and it certainly for certain entrepreneurs has become a competitive advantage. They really like the idea of having that patient and permanent capital. They like the idea also of having indirect exposure to the public markets. Yeah. Many of these companies have aspirations to IPO one day and in order for them to start to see what that means, they can get on the radar of an analyst community that ultimately get to learn about this business far earlier than perhaps if they were uh, uh, backed by a more traditional fund. And, and is the public market scrutinizing your portfolio in a detailed way so that they are exposing those entrepreneurs to kind of, I suppose, some retail investors in some respects? To a certain extent, but what you don't have to do, you report twice yearly. The only real reporting metric is your net asset value. Sure. 
So unless there's a material development in one of your portfolio companies, you are being audited. The auditors in our case, PwC, will sit there and analyze and say, do we think that the asset value for this business is worth X? And if it is, then it all aggregates up to a, a total number that translates to our share price. What you're not having to do is report on a six-monthly or quarterly basis of revenue performance of any yeah. of those. So the level of disclosure isn't such that should unnerve any um, fintech companies out there that would want to uh, want to be backed by someone like ourselves. You talk about the marketing headline of being the only listed fintech fund do you think others will take your lead do you think this is something that this is a trend others will start to move in this direction i do think so and it, it's a nice marketing tagline and i <laughs> hope i genuinely hope that we can't use that uh maybe we'll use we're one of the only uk listed fintech funds you know we raised close on 100 million you know, our aspirations is to grow this to several hundred million but ultimately, as you guys will have seen, the opportunity is enormous in fintech. And, you know, we are going to see on an annual basis billions of pounds of capital come into this market to build the next generation of financial services businesses. And frankly, the more capital in this market from smart, credible investors, the better, because we really do co-invest with some terrific investors, but we can't satisfy the demand of European fintech ourselves. So I hope, you know, others will follow our lead. I think many are watching how we get on. And uh, yeah, I hope I'm not sitting here in two to three years time still saying we're the only uh, UK listed fintech fund. I'm sure you won't be. So what are your plans looking forward? I mean, you spoke a little bit around the billions that are going into fintech. And some people would say that maybe that, you know, it's becoming saturated. I mean, my personal view is that we've still got a long way to go. If you look at how much is spent within the industry, so not into fintech, if you look at the incumbents, I mean, the fintech investment ecosystem is a pin drop in that ocean. Where do you see yourself really going in five years? I mean, obviously, growth is a big part of that story. But where do you see Augmentum fintech, but also the industry going over the next five years? Well, I always talk about where are we in this journey? And I think you're absolutely right. I think there are those out there that feel they've missed the opportunity. And frankly, the journey has just begun. It's been an interesting five or six years. But ultimately, I think over the next 12 months, you start to see the industry come of age. You're going to see different types of investors enter this market. We've obviously seen more and more corporate venture yep. uh, vehicles be created. I think there's greater collaboration in the industry. We're seeing much more collaboration between the banks, as an example, and fintechs, as well as uh, traditional insurance businesses who are starting to embrace what is now called insurtech. I mean, that is an industry that is uh, lost in the stone age that needs huge disruption and change. But ultimately, you know, we are going to start to see some very significant businesses being built that don't exist today or didn't exist two or three years ago. And I think that's really going to change the mindset. So I think, you know, for us, increasing capital, real proof points, substantive proof points that will, I think, change the attitude of those certain people out there that don't believe quite the scale of the opportunity. Mm. And frankly, you know, I've seen that across a number of industries over the past 20 years. I can give you several examples back in 2000 of mm. the CEOs of several large betting companies who certainly between them, I think the top three had close to 85, 90% market share back in 2000. You know, a few years ago, Betfair was bigger than all three of them put together. So wow. that gives you yeah. a sense of 
when you don't embrace disruption, you can really see dramatic change in market share. I think we see an industry in financial services where there's a lot more capital, it's a lot bigger, it's been a lot later to disrupt, and there's a lot of smart people in the industry. So I think they recognize the change that is coming. Our job is not to focus on everything. Frankly, that would be a huge mistake for us. We want to focus on areas where, one, we feel we can have an impact, and two, where we feel our capital can have the greatest level of returns over a reasonable period of time. And I think if we do that, then obviously our success and scale will come. I'd echo your point around proof points. I mean, I think that's where we are at the moment. It's really starting to see the proof points in the industry. I think if I cast my mind back, you know, five, seven years, when we really started to see the beginning of this wave that's fintech, despite the fact that fintech has been around for a long time, what we're really starting to see is mature businesses. They're actually driving profitable growth. And I think that's a part that maybe some people didn't believe that was going to come to fruition and, and really is. And I think that's what's an interesting dynamic in the market at the moment. But touching on your portfolio, I mean, you've got a, a number of, I suppose, disruptive businesses in there, and some of them are increasingly getting larger. I think of iWalker and what they've recently been doing and a significant business as well as some of the alternative lenders in your portfolio. But what is the common characteristic you look for across the businesses that you believe is the determining factor for success? There isn't one. I think the obvious one that we always look for is capability of team. There's no question that the earlier you invest, the more reliant you are on an extraordinary management team, ideally many of whom are founders as well, who have you know started the journey together and have that extraordinary level of commitment that's permeated through you know the rest of the business. I think without that, it is close on impossible to succeed. For us, we don't believe that you need to be a rocket scientist to identify where these areas of disruption are coming. And for every subsector, there will be tens of businesses that on the surface look credible. We've really got to get under the skin of that team to understand, is this a team that can not only execute well, but execute in an extraordinary manner? That ultimately for us is the first test. And in an ideal world, as we look at these subsectors within you know, lending, as an example, or digital banking, what you ideally want is to be the market leader of that space, you know, at worst, the number two. I think if you look at history, the number one and two players, you know, often you know, can dominate a market. And so whether it's Tide being the leading challenger in SME banking, whether it's Zopa being the leading challenger in digital consumer lending, Farewell in digital wills and probate, Cedars equity crowdfunding, Bullion Vault in digital commodities, you can look across the portfolio. And more often than not, we believe that we've got the leading or if not quite leading number two digital challenger in that space. And I think that's incredibly important. We don't want to back a business that's a nice little business, but is going to be the number five or six in that space. I suppose that's testament to your selection process, isn't it? Well, I think time will tell. You can, you can often be the market leader in an emerging subsector, but that hasn't reached scale. And I think you, you make a good point. Proof of concept, proof of profitability, unit economics. There is a lot of cynicism in this market. I think we've seen a yeah. lot of criticism thrown at some of the digital challenger banks. And the big question mark for them is, you know, can they evolve what has been a hugely successful customer acquisition journey into meaningful long-term revenue streams that yeah. ultimately can deliver a return? And personally, I believe it. I mean, I think 
in, in that particular example, it's, it, some may see it as getting slightly saturated. I mean, I was on the London Underground the other day and quite literally every advertisement was for some sort of challenger proposition. And I thought, wow, I mean, in terms of a selection of fintechs to go after at the moment, there's quite a lot, particularly in London. I think you can call top of the market then uh, perhaps <laughs> there. And, and I think it's a good point. You know, tube advertising is always a good, a good indicator of where businesses uh, or sectors are in the market inevitably there will be some consolidation in that space i think the winners will sweep up those that haven't reached scale and others will fall by the wayside which i think is very healthy for an emerging ecosystem as well yeah i know unfortunately in, in the uk sometimes the press will champion failure but i think you know having failures is an important inevitability of a maturing sector as well i agree i think there'll be some level of contraction and then re-expansion in this second or third wave of fintech so kind of twisting away from your role in fintech and your professional role, or I suppose also professional, but looking at some of the extracurricular things you've done. In 2012, you were labeled as um, a young global leader from the World Economic Forum. Tell us a little bit about that experience and how that came about. Well, I just about got the kind of last chance saloon because you have to be under 40. And I think in 2012, I was 39. So I, I think I scraped in. I like to think <laughs> I snuck in through the back door and it's, it's a little bit mysterious because you get nominated and you're not quite sure you're being nominated until you get a note from, I think it's Queen Ranier of Jordan to tell you that you've been selected as a young global leader of which there are five or six in each country and 150 or 200 globally. So it was you know, a pleasant surprise and, and a great honor. And I think the key learning for me was spending time with the wider group, which was an extraordinarily humbling experience because they do take leaders from across the globe and across the spectrum. And frankly, when you get up and introduce yourself at often these, these global events and you have people who have cured illnesses and uh, created peace in, in war zones, and this is yeah. you know, not being flippant here, these are genuine, and then you get up and you say, hmm, actually, I <laughs> exactly, I opened a juice bar. <laughs> um, I think it it's definitely uh, brings uh, brings a bit of perspective. I think for me, the great moments that I had was just spending time with very, very different people and learning and listening. And I often said to new recipients, perhaps those that had come from you know, an entrepreneurial background or corporate world, leave your cynicism at the door and really kind of open up your mind and your ears because you really will learn something. You'll talk to people from extraordinary backgrounds and my greatest regret was I haven't had as much time as I would have liked to have spent in the company of uh, some extraordinary people. But now I am no longer a young global leader. I'm a, an alumni, <laughs> having having fulfilled my six years of service. So I think I'm meant to have a little more uh, wisdom. So it's definitely ambition for me to spend a bit more time in that environment over the coming years. I can imagine it really you know, broadens your perspective. I mean, you obviously have a broad professional background, but being around individuals who are not necessarily in the professional world like ourselves, but are, you know, more solving some of the world's issues. It, it must have really been a great experience. Talking about experience and talking about those individuals who brought you a broader perspective, when you were coming through your career, who are the people that 
you know, you looked up to, who are the role models that you looked at, even from, I don't know, there was a juicing God that uh, inspired the, the juice business or perhaps somebody within the financial service sector that drew you to it. Who, who were the people that you saw as standout leaders when you were coming through your career? I don't think there's been a kind of single catalyst or a single individual that I've sat there and say, I want to be X, I want to be Y. I think often becoming an entrepreneur you are kind of driven from within to succeed. You can draw from several examples. I think when I was looking at the juice bite, it was less about the idea that I wanted healthy eating to kind of permeate across the UK. It was just a recognition that there was an opportunity. Behavior was changing. I could see what was happening in the US with mm. uh, Starbucks. It was really the beginning of that journey. And, and you pick up on trends. I think one thing have been able to be effective at is to be ahead of the curve in terms of detecting trends. And I think the challenge has always been, how do you capitalize on that? Yeah. And so anyone who has really been ahead of that curve, as much as possible, I've tried to immerse myself in what they've done, where it's gone right, where it's gone wrong. I guess, you know, when I read books, what I don't really read is much fiction. I'd love to do more, but I always feel that with limited time that I have, I want to be learning. And I think I learn very effectively through reading both business biographies, but also kind of general autobiographies, because I think there are lessons to be learned there as well. And as, as much as possible, I try and read that. One of the kind of most enlightening books I read recently was the Nike oh, yes, autobiography. Yes. I think it was called Chew Dog, which was an unbelievable read. And I hadn't appreciated the story prior to reading that. But talk about a founder succeeding through so many aspects of adversity along the way. I think it's an inspirational read. And I always talk about two aspiring entrepreneurs about resilience and not looking to give up. And I think any aspiring entrepreneur out there, pick up that book, download it on your Kindle and read it because it will give you an unbelievable perspective of the journey. There you go. Some recommended reading for our listeners. So just final question, I suppose every investor's favorite question, which is irrespective of industry stage throughout your investing career, which is the deal that you wish you didn't leave behind? The one that you left on the table by mistake. Yes. It's Maybe not specific, but... <laughs> the, uh, yeah, the anti-portfolio. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's, uh, there's a few out there. Yeah, it's a good question. I would say, you know, when I started transitioning out of Betfair, and I really felt that, you know, I wanted to get into the venture space. I felt there was enormous opportunity. It was, was less about fintech. I remember sending an email to Danny Reimer of Index Ventures when Skype had just launched. And I remember emailing him saying, Danny, I've downloaded this amazing app. It's incredible. And I see you guys are investors. Is there any chance I'd love to come in? How can I come in? He came back very politely and said, well, we're just going to be doing a, <laughs> uh, a series A round and you know, I'll come back to you. Now, I never, I never pushed it, but I would think that was back in 2007, 2008, wow. maybe, maybe even a little bit before, but right at the very start. So not to say that I passed on it, but I was one of the early users. So I, you know, I am an early adopter yeah. uh, of a lot of technologies, many of which no longer exist today. But I certainly think my record of usage, not necessarily investing, has been pretty effective. So that's probably the one that stands out as... Uh, that would have been a nice one. That, would, that, would, that would have been a nice one for the, uh, for the personal point portfolio. On the fintech side, because we are, you know, a little earlier in that journey, if you ask me that question in three years, I'm sure I'm going to have a long list of ones that missed. There, there are one or two already that have come through the 
door, but we'll see how they uh, play out. I think one's in this building actually as well. <laughs> well, on that note, nothing more to say other than thank you. And I hope you enjoy the rest of the week. There's lots of fintechs here, hopefully a few more to look at in terms of your portfolio. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you for your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time. The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motive partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of motive partners. Motive partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry the economy, motive partners or motive partners investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.